As you're seated, if you have your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And as you turn there, we're going to play a little game. We're going to play a game called Spot the Sniper. So it's kind of like Where's Waldo, but a little more dangerous. So let's pull up the first image. So there is a sniper hidden in the bush. Let's see if anybody can spot him. All right, pull up the next one. We'll show you where he was. Anybody close? All right, let's pull up the next image. There's a, spot, there's a sniper. He's lurking. He's close. Do you think you see him? All right, pull up the next one. That's where he was. Pull up the third one. We'll tell him to stand up so you can see him up. Can you see him now, even though he's standing up? Now, uh, here, I'm going to tell you a story. This is slightly fictionalized, but this is somewhat based on uh, Chris Kyle's book, The American Sniper. The key to putting on camouflage for combat is to appear the opposite of how a human really looks. You have to make the dark light and the light dark. So the parts of the face that naturally form shadows under the eyes, they become light. And the parts that naturally shine, the forehead, the cheeks, the nose, they become dark. As he was putting on his camouflage for his next mission, he thought about all the times that he had been so close to his targets, only 50 feet away, and they didn't see. He thought about how the human mind has this remarkable ability to only see what it expects to see. And he had spent hours and hours perfecting his gully suit, and he had mastered the art of invisibility. In a few hours, he was about to go on the hunt. Since his Navy SEAL team had killed bin Laden, they had gotten all types of significant press, and maybe this was his chance for a little glory. Normally, snipers operate in pairs. The spotter identifies and ranges the target, but not today. It was too risky. His target was none other than Amin al-Zahari, and today he would go alone. He would need no confirmation. The key to this mission was the stalk. If he could get close enough, he was game over. And it was the stalk that made him so good. See, any boy raised in a farm in Kentucky or in the backwoods of Alabama or in Texas, they can hit their target. That's not what made him so good. To say that Marine Sniper School is a cakewalk would be ridiculous. No one breezes through Scout Sniper School. There are only 300 in the entire Marine Corps. But it was easier for him than most. And his nearly perfect scores from the unknown distance test were because of his stalking ability. So tonight it would be a halo, high altitude, low opening drop about five miles out from his target. The first three miles he'd move rather quickly. Then he would slow up considerably, considerably around mile four. And there he'd become one with the dirt. Moving no more than about a foot every 30 seconds. Careful not to stick the muzzle of his rifle too high or too low. He had his beloved 300 Winchester Magnum with a KN250 night vision scope. He had run through every possible scenario. Now was time to calm his mind and get moving. If he could get to 500 yards, mission complete. Al Hazari would die today. 800, it's a little more risky. 1,000 would be tough, but 500, that was the magic number if he could only get close enough. 
And you think about it, I don't know if there's anything that would be more terrifying than being hunted by someone like that. Maybe the only thing worse would be to be hunted by someone like that and not know you're being hunted by someone like that. And one of the truths that the Bible tells us is that we're not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings. And part of the spiritual reality that we inhabit is that we are in a spiritual war and that there's an enemy who's seeking to steal, kill and destroy. And that enemy is incredibly subtle. And he has had millennium to perfect his craft of how to sneak close and strike. And so what we're looking at right now is doing a series on how we can experience the transforming power of the gospel. And what we looked at for the last several weeks is if you're going to know its power, you need to know that you've been created in love and called for a purpose. But for the next several weeks, we're going to look at what we need to be saved from, how sin has entered into the world and it's seeking to bind and to break us. And the power of the gospel is to free us and to heal us. But to begin, we have to know what we're up against. We have to understand the enemy that's coming uh, toward us. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 for two weeks. And this week, we're going to look at the serpent stalk, how he gets close and strikes Adam and Eve. And then next week, we're going to look at the cascade of brokenness that falls in the wake. But this week, let's start with the stalk. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 in Genesis chapter 3. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So then when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. So we're going to walk through this and we're going to begin, number one, let's begin with the serpent. So notice the serpent's introduced in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty. And this you have to look because you look through the whole rest of the Bible and kind of put the pieces together. But it doesn't tell us in Genesis chapter uh, one, two or three who the serpent is. We know from other places that this is Satan, but it's not doesn't give us a whole lot about where he came from, how he got there, because this here is about us. It's not so much about how he got to where he was. It's about how we've gotten to where we are. And notice it tells us two things about him is that he was crafty and he was created. He was crafty, more crafty than all the other beasts. It's an interesting word. It's the word for um, to be prudent. And you go through the Proverbs and it's the same word that's praised in the Proverbs. To be prudent is to be wise. The prudent are crowned with knowledge. And so you have the serpent. He was more crafty. He was more prudent. He was more shrewd. 
And this does give us an interesting window into the nature of evil, because in one sense, uh, nothing is, is evil in and of itself. It's always what Satan does is he's parasitic. He can't create things on his own. He takes God's, goods, God's good gifts and breaks them, twists them. He's kind of like the 16-year-old kid who can't afford his own car, but he can take mom and dad's car and ram it right into the ditch. So that's what he does. He has a gift, and it's the gift of being uh, crafty, wise, prudent, and then it's been twisted and turned. But then notice he's been created. So this is no like kind of strange dualism of the, the light and the dark and the force, and they're battling in this certain way. He's created. He's a created creature, created under God's rule and authority. So the serpent's introduced in verse 1, and then now let's look in verse 2 and 3 how he slithers up the stalk. How does he get close to them? He comes up and he speaks to the woman at the end of the verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And then in verse 2, the woman responds. So notice the key word, did God actually? Did God really? So it's more, you have to hear it with that, you have to hear it with that 21-year-old sarcasm. Really? Did he really? Did he actually say that? See, he's not asking a question, he's making a statement. And the statement is not a statement, it's a sneer. It's an eye roll. He's making a joke. It's like, really? Is that really true? Can you believe that? And then it's interesting that kind of the downfall of humanity begins with a sneer, sarcasm, a joke. It's, it's an attitude. See, indeed, did God indeed say, did he really? Did he actually say that? Now, what's interesting is he's not denying that God has said something. He's mocking what it is that he has said. And what Satan's doing his first way, the way he gets close, is not with an argument, but with an atmosphere. He's creating an atmosphere. Can you really believe that? Are you sure? Several years ago, I read a fascinating book. It's called When God Talks Back. And um, it's by an anthropologist from Stanford. So she's, a, she's an anthropologist, and she embedded herself for three years in this strange human community that she called evangelicals. So for three years, she spent time embedding herself in multiple, it was actually Pentecostal and charismatic churches, and wanted to understand, like, they think that God talks to them. So they talk to God, and then God actually talks back. And it's really an interesting book, because obviously we believe that there's a physical and spiritual world, and if you don't believe in the spiritual world and only see things through a physical lens, some of these things aren't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. But one thing I found fascinating is the different reviews and responses to the book. So one of the book reviews, which was very laudatory in the New York Times, went like this, secular Americans' worst fears have come true. Now there is scientific evidence that evangelical churches brainwash their believers. They don't merely teach that Adam and Eve actually existed and that gay marriage is an abomination. They change the way their members' brains work. And what's so interesting about the whole book review is there's not one line of argumentation in the entire thing. 
the whole thing is a sneering, scoffing, just sneer. Like, oh, can you believe these people who need to be studied by anthropologists? And actually, talking about the book, there are two characters, uh, the, Daniel Dennett, who is the co-director of the Center of Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. And it was, he was having a, a, a debate, a discussion about these type things at the time with Sam Harris. And these are, if, you know, 10 years ago, there were kind of uh, four kind of very visible, vocal, kind of called the New Atheists, Richard Dawkins, Dennett, Harris. And uh, they were having a back and forth about uh, these strange creatures called evangelicals. And in the back and forth, in the interview, Daniel Dennett made the statement that he thinks what would uh, heal our country, and this is pre-2020, you know, but this is what we need to do, if we really want to get our country moving in the right direction, we need to round up all of the Baptists and place them in a zoo. And everybody laughed. You know, everybody laughed, and he got some cheers. And they said, well, that's what we need to do. We need to round up the Baptists, put them in a zoo. And now you stop and think about it for a second. Now that's creating an atmosphere. It's, he's trying to, trying to make a sneer, a joke. But in our world of politically correct speech, let's just now, he, he didn't lose his job for saying that. So he, there, there is a diversity director at Tufts University, and no one prosecuted him for hate speech. But let's just do a little thought experiment, and let's take out Baptist, and let's put in any other demographic of people in the blank, and you answer the question, we'll do a thought experiment, would he still have a job if he said this? Would he be cheered if he said, all right, what we really need to do to get our country moving in the right direction is place all of the Muslims in a zoo. We need to place all the Hindus in a zoo. We need to place all the African-American men in a zoo. Take any of the LGBT letter, just put, put in any one in the blank. Would he still have a job if he said any one of those in there? You all know the answer to that question. It's kind of like, there, even if you think, all right, it does take the Baptist. So I'm an ordained Baptist pastor, so maybe I feel it a little more. But let's just, so surely we're not going to put all the Baptists in a zoo. I mean, most Baptists are wonderful people. It's just the Baptist preachers, right? You know, just those potluck-loving, hellfire-and-damnation preaching preachers that need to go with the zoo. So let's start with some you know, notable ones. How about Billy Graham, that relic, that Baptist preacher? What about Martin Luther King Jr.? Is he the one that needs to go, that Baptist preacher? And so you see what's happening here. It's not, it's not an argument. It's an atmosphere, a way of mocking. One of the things Tim Keller often says and things like that, he said, would say something like, that's an assertion trying to create an atmosphere. It's not an argument. So please tell me why you think what I believe is untenable. See, it's an, it's, it's, a, it's an atmosphere trying to create, and it's using sarcasm. And one of the hard things about humor and sarcasm and, and sneering is that there's a godly way of humor. There's a clean humor, but then there's also a serpentine humor, and it's corrosive, and it puts people down, and it destroys, and it tries to laugh at all truth claims, and it has this posture that, you know, uh, the whole world is filled with BS, and I'm the only one who can see right through it. And it ends up getting you to a point where you have no friends because you can see through everyone. 
you know, W.H. Auden said that there's a difference between kind of Greek humor, classical Greek, and Shakespearean humor. He was talking about in literature. He says in Greek humor, it ends with everybody on the stage is crying, and everybody in the audience is laughing at them. He says, but Shakespeare's humor is everybody on the stage is laughing, and everybody in the audience is laughing together. And it's because one came from a Christian worldview, and the other one doesn't. But one of the challenges is we live in a sarcastic age. We live in an age where irony is the only humor we have left, and it's, it's dangerous. You know, it's one thing we're kind of worth thinking about. How can Christians use things like sarcasm and satire? Um, here, what Satan is doing is he's using a sneer. Can you really believe? No, 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 no. God didn't actually say that. And then notice what, how the woman responds. We may eat. So then he, he, gets, uh, he, he starts with the sneer, and then there's a back and forth, and then comes the contradiction, at least from his part. Do you notice in verse 4? But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, he, he, does, he begins with a question, but then comes the contradiction. Did God really say that? And what he's doing is he's, it's disturbing and it's flattering. What he's inviting Eve to do is to stand in judgment of God. Can you really believe he'd say that kind of thing? What a cosmic party pooper. What a killjoy. And then notice how she responds. She corrects him because he says, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's exaggerating. So it is intriguing that the two tactics he uses to get close is kind of scoffing, sneering, and then exaggerating. And those are two things we have to be uh, aware of. And you will receive this. I just brought these beauties, and this is just from Friday and Saturday that came into my mail. You probably have gotten dozens of these filled with, did you know that if you elect so-and-so, they're going to unleash deadly criminals into our street, and they're going to destroy our schools, and social capital, uh, communism is coming, and all of these different property values are going in the tank. Like, not here. And so exaggerate, you'll see it everywhere. And that's what he uses, sneering, exaggerating. And then notice how she responds. Uh, I find it interesting. She doesn't correct him, but she has to enter in. Now, you can go back a page or two and see what God actually told Adam in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So he gives them, You can eat of every single one in the garden, but not this one. Just this one stay away from. And then how does she frame it? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, in verse 2, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here comes the camouflage. See, first is the stalk, and he uses sarcasm and humor and exaggeration to get close. And then comes the camouflage where he just outright contradicts God in verse 4. You will surely not die. 
See, the first step is the attitude of the heart to get them doubting, questioning, mocking, looking with disdain down on God. And then next comes the lie to the mind. He doesn't start with the lie to the mind. He starts with the attitude of the heart. This is how camouflage works. You have to make the dark places light and the light places dark and a flat contradiction. And it's the doctrine of judgment. You will not die. God will not judge you. But see, notice what he's doing here. He's not going after God's existence. He's not going after God's commands. He's going after God's goodness. Like, don't you see he's keeping something from you? There's something that's good that he's withholding. It's God's goodness. The temptation is that if you trust him, you won't be happy. And what he's trying to do is to, to destroy their trust in his goodness. Is he really good? Is what he said really true? Is it really beautiful? Is this really the path to flourishing? And that's the core question that we live in. Many of the social questions that cause difficulty now and many of the things that she wanted to examine in her book are questions about, is God really good? Is what he said, is this really the path to flourishing? And that's the challenge that he makes. And he wants to undercut their trust. Can you trust him? You know, I find it interesting when you think about the dynamics I've been learning recently of the different things about what child psychologists say about attachment theory and the first couple years of a child's life and how important it is for them to, uh, to, to connect and attach to their primary caregivers and trust that they will be there and that they will love them and all of those things. And isn't it interesting at the very beginning, he's trying to undercut their attachment. Like, can you trust him? And I just wonder how many other sins cascade down from that core disbelief that I can't trust him for my good. And here what Satan's doing, this is the camouflage. He's making what should be dark look light and what should be light look dark. Notice what he says, and you will know. Then you'll know. See, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So you can't see right now. He's hiding from you. You're deluded. And then you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And here, what he's tempting them with is more than just a kind of an awareness of moral categories. It's in the domain of choice and judgment. They will be the ones who then can pronounce what is good. It's at the core idolatry and autonomy. Who will determine what I get to say and believe? You will be like God. You will take on some of his exclusive prerogatives. So in many ways, sin is not, the sin here is not that they're just breaking some of the rules. It's that they're placing themselves in God's place. They're telling him to get out of his chair in his place of authority. I'm going to determine these things for me. Sin's not the breaking of the rules, it's placing yourself at the center. So now it's been camouflaged, now notice the strike, the bite. Look at the progression in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so that's a universal pattern for how sin follows. You follow the impressions of your heart, not the instructions that you've been given. You determine for yourself what's going to be good, what is evil, rather than entrusting in the maker. Then you see, you think what you see is good. It captures your heart, your delight, and then you grasp and you take and then you eat. And then you think, all right, well, what happened here? What's this portraying? Why was this, I mean, so bad? And what happens as soon as she takes and she bites, the strike is that she now has become evil from the inside. See, she's truly become what she has eaten. And one way to kind of help think about this knowledge, this knowledge of good and evil. So this is knowledge that they were, they were going to get, but this knowledge that was going to come through learning and training and sitting at their father's feet as he helped them uh, discern and learn what is good and what is evil. But then they take it and bite, and now they know evil from the inside, not the outside. So you think about it like this. Let's imagine that you start having significant, sharp pains in your stomach. And then you can't keep down food. And then this goes on for weeks and you become, uh, you're, just, you're just miserable. And then you go to the doctor and you get diagnosed with a form of stomach cancer. And then now they start to run, to run tests and then you get sent off to like MD Anderson and you're going to have a consultation with uh, the nation's leading stomach cancer expert. Now you're sitting in the room with uh, him or her and you're, you're discussing your case. Now both of you have significant knowledge about stomach cancer. One of you knows all about it from the inside and one of you knows all about it from the outside. Now, in that scenario, which would you prefer to be? You know, what's happened is they were going to know all about this from the outside, but once sin enters in, it enters into the heart, and now we know all about these things from the inside. And you think about the challenge for everyone in this room. I think about it for all of my Kids, you know, they will learn in this world. They will gain the knowledge of good and evil. But will they learn it from the outside or from the inside? You know, once the strike, once the bite happens, it now goes internal. And now the whole question of the rest of the Bible is how can this be reversed? See, how can we be made good again from the inside and then work out? And one of the reasons we take communion every week is just to remind us it was take and eat that brought the destruction upon us all. And it's another invitation to take and eat that's going to bring the restoration to us all. Because now we're evil on the inside, but our hope. And when Jesus sets up the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, before he goes to the cross, it says, now when they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, take and drink all of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. 
So he was take and eat that made us to know evil from the inside and is take and eat that's going to help us to know good from the inside. This is how we are remade. So how can you take and eat? The first is you take and you, you internalize him by repentance and you accept him and you cry out to him and confess. See, Adam and Eve, what we'll see next week is the first things they do is they begin to hide and they try to cover. But then we stop hiding and stop trying to cover and we uh, confess and cry out to him in repentance. And then we feed on him in faith. He gave his blood to cleanse us, and he gave his body to sustain us. You could twist or paraphrase John 3.16 that for Satan so hated the world that he gave them the forbidden fruit and said, take and eat. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that son calls out, I am the living bread who's come down from heaven. If anyone will feed off of me, if anyone will take me, if anyone will have my spirit enter into them, you will live and live forever. The bread that I give is the bread of life and it is my body. So we come to him each week and if you have yours, you can take and he took uh, he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you and then he took the cup and said this cup represents my blood that's shed for you my grace my mercy it gets into you and then it works from in to out and then what happens is when the spirit in, enters into us, it reverses the same, or we take the same path just in the opposite direction of how Eve fell. So the first thing is she saw the tree, that it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be more desired and to make one wise, and she took it and ate, and the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes so we see another tree, and we see that that tree is good, and it becomes becomes a delight to our eyes, not because it makes us wise, but because it makes us whole and it puts back together all that's been broken and we take and eat and we see now that it's the Lord who's not hiding something from us, but it's the Lord who's compassionate and gracious. He's patient and abounding in loving kindness. So Lord, we come, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his blood shed to redeem and restore us. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. We pray that you would release us from our bondage, that you would heal us from our suffering, and that you would restore us to wholeness and strength. And now we ask that you would help us to be wise, but wise not in the serpent-type way, but wise in your spirit to know how the serpent is trying to sneak close to us. So help us to be wise, but we thank you that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.